you. Good morning, Mercy Church. Let's give a hand to our pastor, Pastor Eugene. You are blessed with a fantastic pastor. I, I met with Eugene a couple months ago, and I said, Eugene, when was the last time you had Sunday off? And he did that sly smile, like, that said everything, like, it's been a while. And so I said, please, please let me, let me preach for you. And he's a very wise pastor, too, because he picked today, daylight savings time, so he got that extra hour. So well done, well done. The Bible is a mini library of 66 books written in three languages over a span of 1,500 years by some 40-some-odd authors of variety styles, living across three continents, 2,500 miles apart. And yet, with all that diversity, the closed canon of Holy Scripture tells one story. And that one story has one central character. That character is Jesus. As Pastor Eugene has repeated these these past few weeks, but it's worth reiterating, from Genesis to Revelation, the book is about and points to Jesus. To, to visualize this uh, connection of the diversity of the Bible telling one story, I want to bring this image. Can you see that? It's a little hard to see, but you can see this beautiful image here. It's a, a pastor and a math professor put together a data set of every cross-reference in the Bible. If you have a study Bible with you on the on the center column and at the bottom, there will be scripture references. Those are cross-references of whatever scripture you're reading it will point to some other place in the Bible of what it's referring to. This graphic shows 66, excuse me, 63,779 cross-references across the Bible. Isn't that spectacular? The, the bar graph along the bottom here represents every chapter in the Bible. Do you notice the, the longest one here, right about the middle, midpoint of the entire Bible? What do you think is the longest? Does anyone want to guess, class? What's the longest chapter in the Bible? So, it's in Psalm. Psalm, which one? Psalm 119. Exactly right. Gold star, whoever said that. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all about the psalmist writing the delight and the love of God's word. Each cross-reference is depicted by a single arc of light, and the colors represent the length of that reference point. Really, when you look at the, the Bible as a library, you can understand the New Testament, in a way, is a commentary on the Old Testament. There, there are 350 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the New. Jesus quotes wisdom literature, the Psalms, more than any other book uh, in the Bible. There are over 2,300 allusions to the Old Testament in the New. So Pastor Eugene, I heard you say last Sunday, because I was watching at home, that you're going to be preaching on Revelation. Your pastor, in preaching the last book of the Bible, Revelation, will spend at least 100 hours in the Old Testament studying Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel in preparation for that connection. If the Bible had been completely random in terms of storytelling, we wouldn't have this image. Yet that diversity of thought, culture, authorship was inspired by a single author, by a single architect, one who calls himself the Alpha and Omega by his sovereign providence. 
Now, in, in order to better understand that one story, because it is very diverse, and you can just open the Bible someplace random and wonder, what the heck am I reading? To understand the diversity of that one story, we need to understand the content. We need to understand how the story is being expressed, how the story is being told. And so Pastor Eugene has gone over uh, twice so far two different genres or or sections of Scripture. So you started the very first sermon a couple weeks ago. uh, In the first five books, the Law, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the five books, you did that. And then last week you did the history books. Historic books. Today we're going to look at the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. We're going to focus specifically on the book of Job. These books, these books here listed in red, communicate how to live well. Taking notes, wisdom, how to live well. Now in life, in what theologians would call common grace, God's common grace and blessing to people, there's all kinds of Forms of wisdom. There's a certain amount of of wisdom of how to live well that's out there in the world. And so there are people that don't believe in Jesus, aren't followers of God, unbelievers, who know how to manage their money well. You look to them for advice right now in the midst of everything that's happening in our economy. They know how to respond positively to difficult circumstances, even responding to tragedy with strength and dignity. Yet God alone created the world so only he can give true wisdom and insight into the meaning of his world, how his world works, and how to live well by his wisdom in light of eternity. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, uh, Paul writes this, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. God's ways are so beyond our comprehending, and yet he's the one who knows how it all works. So we should look to him to know how it works well. And that's what we find in these books. Today's uh, book is perhaps the most wise of all. It's certainly uh, very likely the oldest of all the books in the Old Testament, the book of Job. And Pastor Eugene has had a word for each day. Today the word is foreshadows. Book of Job, in particular, in all these wisdom books, they foreshadow Christ. Now what is wisdom? Wisdom is is knowledge of the facts, what's really real, what's really going on, the data, plus making sense of that fa- those facts, times the necessary wherewithal to do something about it. The resolve to take that knowledge, that insight, and then to act. So a little formula would be real, what's really real, plus reasoning times resolve equals wisdom. Let me help you understand what we're talking about. Uh, Imagine for a moment if every decision you made was the right one every single time. If you're over five years old, you'd all say, well, that'd be be pretty. Wouldn't you like to be able to rewind the tape a few times on a few decisions you've made? I'll raise two hands on that one. (laughs) Imagine if you always knew what was really going on. And what I mean by that is, You always knew what your boss was thinking, what your client was thinking, what your spouse was thinking, what your parents were thinking. You always had the right insight to make sense of a situation. And you always had the wherewithal and the means to use that information to make the exact right decision to get what you want that's in your best interest every single time. 
Imagine if you could see the big picture. Every pixel, every, every connection, every cross-reference that you knew every move on the chessboard of life, how much would that be worth to you? How about this one? How about if you knew all the winning lotto numbers from last night? And that's like, what, one in 300 million chance? You can see the value of wisdom. The reality is life's far too complex. There are too many variables to get everything right all the time. So when, when life isn't going right, when life goes wrong, where do we turn? That's when we need wisdom. Wisdom from the author, from the architect. Church, let me ask you, are any of you here facing a difficult decision? Are any of us here facing complicated life choices? Are you not sure what to do? Or why things have happened the way they've happened? You're still trying to make sense of things that happened before you. Are you wondering where to turn next? How to make sense of your life? Maybe not even for you, maybe it's for a loved one. And how to give them something we would call wise counsel. You, my friend, are feeling the need for wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what God has told us to do and how to live. The book of Job deals with a lot of complicated life questions. In fact, the most complicated of life questions. So today's title is, Where is Wisdom Found? Let me give you a little background into the life of Job. Uh, Not an Israelite. This was written thousands of years ago in the time of the patriarchs, so some 4,000 years ago. The opening of the book of Job says that Job was a blameless man. Three times the Lord God himself calls Job, quote, blameless and upright. In other words, Job is a genuine believer, a man of integrity. He, he behaves the right way in dealing with people. He's not perfect, but, but he has high character and integrity. It's really impressed upon us to understand that he's a good guy. He's doing the best he can by his family, and God has blessed him with a, a big, beautiful family with, with money and, and, and the opportunity to expand the opportunities to his kids to pass that, that wealth down from generation to generation. And Job honors God by offering sacrifices for his kids, it says, which is a wonderful little nuanced uh, attribute added there. Job loves his children. He wants the best for them, and even though he doesn't even know God yet, he says that there's some sense of a need to sacrifice on their behalf. So far, so good, right? Raise your hand if you know the story of Job. You know what's coming. If you oh yeah. This is what's coming. This good man, man of integrity, blameless, a genuine believer. And the next scene is in the court of heaven. And in that court scene of heaven where God is on his throne, the angels are attending him, the book of Job says the Satan arrives. I use the word the because Satan is a title. It means the accuser. In the same way that Christ is not Jesus' last name. You don't say, uh, table for two for Christ. Like, no, that's his title of Christ, the Messiah. Satan is the Satan. He is 
the accuser. And thus Satan stands in the heavenly court serving his purposes of looking for genuine believers of God on earth. And so in the story, the Lord God brings up Job's name as one of the true believers. Uh, If he had never mentioned Job, none of this would have happened. But God says, what about my servant Job? And so Satan, the, the accuser, says, let's prove it. Let's prove that he's a genuine believer. Allow me to have my way with him and he'll turn on you. And God allows it. God lets Satan attack Job. First he attacks his wealth, and then he snatches his children, and then he attacks Job's physical health. But he doesn't kill him. If he killed him, then the, the, the proof of, this, of the uh, little exercise would never be worked out. And it's harrowing to hear this story. Messenger after messenger come into to Job to say, you've been financially absolutely ruined. Like, like a catastrophic weather event. And then the next messenger, all of your children have died. Like the most horrendous terrorist attack. And then the diagnosis comes. Like going to hear from your doctor that you're terminal. Every blessing in Job's beautiful life is crushed and destroyed. God governs through supernatural powers that even the Satan is among these powers, an evil power used of God for governing the world. Look at this text here from Job chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. One of Job's first responses, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And we sing a song, was that one of those worship songs? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's about loss. It's about suffering. We sing, we clap along. It's kind of an old song. And you come to church and the worship leader says, how are we all doing? And you're expected to say, great. But sometimes we come to church and say, I'm awful. I'm lost. I'm confused. That's why I'm here, worship leader. Paul gets very real with our emotions in the, book of, uh, in the book of Job and all the wisdom literature. And here it is, a man who's stripped of everything. Job, though, does not turn, yet he's absolutely devastated by his losses. And his wife says, you, you might as well just die. And finally, after the loss of his health, by chapter three, he does wish that he's dead. And then the next chapter comes, and Job has some friends, some so-called friends. I'm, I'm doing air quotes if you're just listening to this online. Because they're not friends. They're not comforters. They're also referred to as comforters. These, these acquaintances of Job's who come to sit with him during mourning. People ancient times, as they still do, do now uh, in the Middle East, would, would mourn for seven days in silence. Have you ever been part of a, of a time of mourning in that way? And so they sit with him in silence. 
Job sits there like a corpse. We find, soon find that the friends sit there in judgment of Job. I say that because in a series of speeches, his, his friends lay out what they think is going on. Their understanding of wisdom, why Job has suffered so much. And they say a few things that are right and a few things that are very, very wrong and even dangerous. They say God is just and sovereign. Yes, true, he is. Hallelujah. And then they say the world that God has created is ordered by justice. And they conclude that God only rewards virtue and punishes vice. That's justice, right? Reward virtue, doing the right thing, you'll be blessed, and punishing vice, do the wrong thing, and you'll be punished. That, my friends, is not in the gospel. My friends, this book will betray the happy, clappy prosperity that we hear so often. And yet this understanding of wisdom of how the world works is very, very contemporary. I'm looking around the room like, I've heard that before. This is their conclusion, but their conclusion is they say, so Job, what you've experienced is justice. Essentially they say, so Job, you must have done something wrong for all these things to have happened. Uh, You look good on the outside, but there's got to be something that you did to what? What's the word? Deserve it, right? They believe God is good, but they don't believe in undeserved blessing. So they can't understand grace. And they believe that God is just, but they cannot understand undeserved suffering. So they will never understand or know the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? They don't understand an undeserved, unwarranted blessing so they can't get grace. They don't understand a world in which something terrible could happen in the midst of justice, of suffering, so they could never understand what we know now to be the cross. And yet Job knows he hasn't done anything to deserve the suffering. Yet he can't figure out why it's happening. And and he's desperate. He's desperate to understand why. Why? And this prompts his search for wisdom. We come all the way to our text today. If you want to open your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Chapter 28. I'm just going to read a portion of this amazing poem of a man on a search for answers. I'm going to read verses 9 to 15 and the verses 20 to the end of the poem. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes and his eye sees every uh, precious thing. He dams up springs so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. From where, then, does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding It's hidden from the eyes of the living, 
and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, we've heard rumor of it with our ears. Yet God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He alone established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Job and his friends are trying to figure out and understand the mysteries of life. Why have these tragedies befallen Job? Because he sinned or because of some other reason? Have you ever asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I think there's a book by that title. How do we make sense of life's unanswerable, painful questions? In essence, it's looking for wisdom. And Job expresses this search of wisdom and the, the value of wisdom in the form of a poem about mining. You see, at that, at that time, the greatest human technology allowed man to mine the earth for precious gemstones, uh, gold, diamonds. So this is a, it's a, it's an allusion to the greatest form of technology. We would probably write the same poem having to do with searching the stars. And the mining we care most about now is stuff for lithium batteries and cobalt and everything. But this was about this ancient human technology, the cutting edge. And yet wherever they search, they can't find it. Job continues by saying, Yet this wisdom that I search for is priceless. I've searched everywhere, high and low. It cannot be found. And as it, the poem concludes, he says, Only God, the creator, knows where it's hidden. Verse 23, quote, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Why? Because God sees from on high, verse 24, as the creator God. He determined, listen to this, God alone determined the weight of wind, established the laws and forces governing raindrops and lightning bolts, verses 25 to 26. God, the author, the architect of life, knows the ways of the world and, and understands the ways and how the parts of his universe fit together, verse 27. And then finally, we come to the last verse, chapter 28, verse 28. And for the first time, Almighty God speaks to Job, to man. And he said to man, that's the Lord God, said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Throughout the wisdom books, we'll find that it is to fear the Lord is the way to find wisdom. If you want wisdom, you must fear. What does that mean? It's not to be afraid. <laughs> it's to fear. It's to be in awe, in wonder, in reverence before God. That's what it means to fear the Lord. I mean, when was the last time you saw the most beautiful sunset of your life? I mean, yesterday, I, you know, that 
storm on Friday and we had a little break in the weather. Beautiful sunset. When's the last time you saw crashing waves, the power of the sea? Or, or listened to beautiful classical music that just took your breath away or saw an incredible work of art? What do we do in the sight of something that's wondrous and awe-inspiring like that? What do we do when we see that? We, we stand still, don't we? Like, oh, wow. Wow. Well, we grab our loved ones. Come, come, come here. Come, turn off the TV. Come, come here. Come here. Just look. Just be still for just a moment and take it in. That's what it means to fear. He says, behold, fear the Lord, reverence and awe. It's to be still and to listen. This is one of the references in Wisdom Literature Psalm. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 46, verse 11 says, Be still and know that I am God. Another translation is, quit striving. Quit squirming in your seat. Be still and know that I am God. It's to be still before God that we begin to understand wisdom. And it's also, second to that, he says it's also, quote, to turn away from evil is to gain understanding. Do you know the closer you are to God, the more aware of your sinfulness you'll become. Do you know that? The closer you are to God, the more aware you are that you are not God. And all the things that you've made Mistakes and foolish things that you've done. Simon Peter, when he saw the, the glorious uh, miracle of Jesus, what does Simon Peter, he says, Lord, he says, he fell at Jesus' feet. This is Luke chapter five, verse eight. He fell at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The fact that you're aware of it, the fact that you're troubled, even before we come to the communion table where a pastor will say, let's examine our hearts and you're, like, oh, there's, there's some things I need to work on. Friends, that is a good thing. That means that you're growing spiritually. If you come up and like, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's great in my life. I don't have to worry about those people. Then you're in trouble. But if you feel it, we're so risk adverse. We're so adverse to not feeling well. We're constantly, just make me feel better all the time. If you feel bad, that's a good thing, spiritually speaking. Now listen, if you're searching for wisdom under every rock, answers to the mysteries of life outside of the word, outside of the living word, which is Jesus, you will be as frustrated as Job is at this point in the story. None of your friends, your comforters, will have any advice to share with you that will alleviate the painful circumstances you find yourselves in. It's not for us to expect to find answers to everything, to be able to data mine and analyze and, and come up with the exact formulation No, our calling is to live our lives as disciples, as students of Jesus, bowing to the Father in humble reverence, laying down our most agonizing questions at the foot of the sun, and then picking ourselves up each day and staying in step with the Holy Spirit. The way to find wisdom Whatever circumstance you find yourselves in right now is here. It's to be still and to trust and to obey Jesus. It's to be humbled by your lack of knowing before an all-knowing Father. 
It's to be still and to know that he is God and you are not. I've personally have been in the second worst season of my life these past seven months of living on God's green earth. You know you're having a really terrible seven months when uh, having an internal organ removed from your body, which I'm still healing from the scars from last week, removing an internal organ doesn't even break the top 10 of terrible things that have happened to you. That's how bad my seven months have been. But I'm learning, I'm figuring out how to be still. And I've learned that sometimes God destroys our plans he sees because those plans will destroy us. That God brings hard things into my life to teach me wise, maturing things. That being bullied or abused has a purpose of getting past that to a blessing in Christ. So that I can say with my family, with my friends, with you this morning, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, O God. You give and take away. Blessed be your name. You've brought hard things into my life in order to teach me wise things and the right way to live. Passing this test has led to a promotion in my life. You think about the test that you take. How many of you have taken a driver's test? What happens when you pass that test? You're a little nervous. What happens? You're promoted. So passing the test, Lord, by your grace, I'm still here with integrity. It's taken me seven months of learning to be still. Believe me, my family knows I'm, this is me being still. But it's Sunday morning. But let's get real. It's up and down. It's not, spiritual growth, sanctification isn't just a, a clean straight line to glory. No, it's up and down. But in these months, in humble fear of the Lord, daily turning from evil, praying through all of the emotions, seeking wisdom in that, learning again in a new way that when God brings hard things into your life, he is doing something bigger. It's something you can't see, you can't make sense of it, but it's ultimately better. Ultimately. Parents, how many of you have taken your child to get uh, immunization shot? And they're screaming and they're crying and they're looking at you like, how could you do that? You've turned on me. But you know, if, they, if you don't, they'll get measles, right? If you are in Christ, don't see hard times in your life as a curse. See them as a working of God's sovereign providence. Because I know that what I have lost can't compare to what I've gained. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says this, The Lord corrects the people he loves and disciplines those he calls his own. If you're suffering right now, if you're in a hardship right now, write that verse down. Hebrews 12, verse 6. The Lord God reveals something incredible here uh, at the end of this poem, chapter 28, 28. The way the world is ordered is not by God's justice. We should all be on our feet saying hallelujah that the world's not ordered by God's justice. Why? Because 
we'd all be guilty. We don't want justice. You don't want no part of God's justice. No, the world is ordered according to God's wisdom. By God's reality, plus his reasoning, times the resolve of his providence not to give us justice, but to give justice to his son on the cross and to give to us the free gift of grace. So the story ends. The accuser has been proved wrong. Job does fear God and he turns away from evil. He's still blameless and upright. At the end of the day, all that he's left with is his integrity. And yet, through this suffering, through this dark valley, all of it, the book ends with him being vindicated. God returns to him great blessing. What's lost is lost forever. The scars will be there forever. But he grains a great blessing. And this is how Job foreshadows Christ. Who Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 3, in whom are the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ Jesus is the wisdom of God. Hidden in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I wonder as Paul was writing to Colossae, if he was thinking of Job chapter 28. Since wisdom cannot be found on earth, God's wisdom descended to earth in the person of Jesus. In him, we begin to understand how innocence and suffering and justice come together. In his life, there was great suffering. His entire life, he was, he was chased, he was harassed, he was, he was tempted. There was great warfare by the devil. He was betrayed, he was falsely accused, he was abandoned, he agonized in the garden, and finally he was brought to a Roman cross and nailed to that cross. And the spiritually blind thought he looked so foolish, didn't they? You think you're a wise guy up there. They thought they were foolish. And the Satan thought he'd won. And the crowds that were there mocked him, they yelled, if you are the Messiah, come down off that cross and show us, prove to us that you're the Messiah. Get down that cross. What did Jesus do? He could have, had, he could have come off that cross. But what did he do? He remained still. He was still. He was submitting to the eternal plan that he had had with the Father. This is the picture of God's wisdom. And the Apostle Paul says that the cross epitomizes, is the very greatest example of God's wisdom. He says it here, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. They don't understand what's going on. Folly to the Gentiles. The, the, the pagans, they think we're, we're crazy. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You'll never be still in your suffering and gain wisdom until you see God in Jesus Christ being still while suffering for your sake. Now take this to heart. So when trouble comes, and you're suffering, and I imagine, I don't know this church, but I imagine in any room of 100 people, there are people suffering. Pastor, you know that. You feel that burden. 
Take that to heart when trouble comes your way and you're still suffering even now. In your uncertainty, in your doubt, that you can say, I don't understand it. Does it make sense, Lord God? I don't deserve this, but I look to Jesus. He didn't deserve it either. So help me, Lord, to, in reverent worship of you, to still trust and obey you. Help me not to sin and do what's evil. Or what 1 John 1, 7 would say, to walk in the light as he is in the light with the fellowship of believers by the blood of Christ who purifies us from all sin. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. We're gonna get ready for communion in just a moment. And as they do, I wanna share with you just one example of that, one of those light arcs that we saw at the beginning. If I had a laser pointer, my eyes aren't that good, but it would probably be like from about there all the way over to there. I want you to see this cross-reference. This cross-reference, a reference to the cross. Ecclesiastes, the book of Old Wise Solomon, chapter 8, verse 12 says this, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, an evil person prolongs their life, they win, they seem to win every time, yet I know that it will be well with those who what? Fear God. Because they fear before him. Cross-reference. All the way across hundreds and hundreds of years. Far, far away. All the way to a prison cell. The Apostle Paul waits being sent to be executed, he writes to the church in Rome, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the cross reference I want to leave you with. The cross of justice for Jesus, the cross of grace for us. It's not for us to expect to find answers to every mystery. No, our calling is to live in Christian community with other Christians struggling to figure these things out, to follow God's commands, to still live in in fear of the Lord and praise before God, to not do evil, to, to praise and thank God for answered prayers and when things are going well and to cry and grieve and come alongside when things go terribly wrong. If this morning before we come to the table you're looking for wisdom Here are these words from James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And in just a moment, we're going to pray for that. And it will be given you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that, that is driven and tossed by the wind. May the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see the God who rules the world with wisdom. And the promised victory in Jesus Christ, who is God's wisdom in the flesh. Will you please stand with me, church? And then I'll pray, and then we'll, we're going to sing as we prepare to come to the table. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, these beautiful 
words of scripture, this poem, I want to begin our prayer with a poem of praise, that great hymn, immortal, invisible God, only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask now for wisdom. For anyone here, raise your hand if you need wisdom, if you need counsel, you need guidance. Just raise your hand. I need an answer, Lord God. Sometimes, Lord God, we have so many why questions and it leaves us frustrated because there isn't an easy answer to the why question. Help us, Lord, as we seek your wisdom to ask questions of what and how. We have why questions. Why this, why that, but we don't have answers, but we can ask, what will I do with what I've got? How will I choose to live? Will I turn to evil? Will I lash out? Will I jump at the most easiest decision and choice? Or do you have something else for me, Lord? Grant us that wisdom. You who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? So Lord, we come asking for wisdom and strength in this hour of need as we come to the provision of your table. Amen.